0: Je vole sous le soleil Sans toi,
1: rien n'est pareil Je vole sous ton ciel Je vole sous les nuages Tu as laissé tes bagages Je vole sous un toit Même si tes bras
2: sont loin de moi. On Sunday the 14th of July, France celebrates Bastille Day, or Fête Nationale Francaise. But what exactly is Bastille Day? What does it represent to the French people? And which way to the celebratory cheese platter? Many of us have a rough understanding of the history surrounding Bastille Day. We know that on the 14th of July, 1989, the year that Carrie ann Kennelly was born, a medieval political prison known as the Bastille was stormed by members of the French Revolution. And this was seen by the revolutionaries as a turning point in their quest for, you know, not rich people. But I'm guessing there's a little bit more to it than that. So in this week's episode, we'll be diving into the history of Bastille Day. We'll find out how you can get involved in Bastille Day celebrations around the country and we'll also be chatting with a Paris-based fashion photographer, Stephanie Liu, who is taking Franco-Australian relations to stunning new heights with her magazine, Peachy Keen. I'm Tegan Higginbotham. Welcome to Ruler Mark. (music) Growing up, My education around European history was somewhat lacking. And by lacking, I mean completely non-existent. Educated in Dandenong. Hey! So most of what I know has been cobbled together from, you guessed it, movies and TV. I'm a double major. Soon, we're going to chat with Melbourne University Professor Peter McPhee, who specialises in research on French history and the French Revolution. But for now here's what I managed to cobble together all by myself. A long time ago, back when people still painted their faces white and danced to music that sounded like this, there was this thing called the French Revolution. Rich people were mean, poor people were sad, and everyone sung about it heaps. I dreamed a dream in time gone by hit the note when hope was high and life worth living Mm. fuck off susan boyle (laughs) so the man in charge during this time was king louis the xv1 which is the number 16 now i'm gonna be honest i don't know heaps about him the reason he's not in many movies why Because if we're really blunt about it, he wasn't the interesting one. He was the Freddie Prince Jr. to Sarah Michelle Gellar, the Matthew Broderick to Sarah Jessica Parker. He wasn't nearly as fascinating as Marie Antoinette, who, as we all know, was played in real life by Kirsten Dunst. I... Love reading about Marie Antoinette. Madame Deficit, one of the key factors in the French Revolution. Now, if you don't know who I'm talking about, first of all, um, maybe read a book sometime. By which I mean watch a movie. But Marie Antoinette was a self-centred, narcissistic, greedy woman with too much power and influence. So think Kim Kardashian, but with far more class. Marie Antoinette wasn't just bad. She was fashionably bad. The hair, the dresses... Historians also believe that she was the one who made croissants popular in France. I mean, stop flirting, Marie Antoinette! Yes, she's one of the great villains of all time, but I digress. There are a few things worth keeping in mind. First of all, Marie Antoinette was the 15th in a family of 16 children. Let's just process that for a second. 16 kids. That poor mother. That poor, poor woman. If there's any silver lining in this, it's that after child number 14, there is no way she's needing to push anymore, you know? She just opens her legs and, oop, the baby falls out with a miniature parachute. They're not being born anymore, they're being deployed. But that's intense. One of 16? I mean, talk about being the middle child. I am the middle child, or as we're officially known, the unloved attention seekers of the family, and clearly it's had a negative impact on me.
3: Why don't you start another podcast, Tegan? What a
2: good suggestion. Don't mind if I do. So I can imagine that being one of 16 probably affected Marie Antoinette a little. I also learned something fascinating regarding Marie Antoinette's famous catchphrase, let them eat cake. Turns out she never even said it. She never said those words. It was made up by the papers of the time in an act of bad journalism, which is incredible. I mean, I never even knew new idea was around back then. Crazy. But let's get back to Bastille Day. So, Kirsten Dunst and Jason Schwartzman were being all rich and shitty and ruling France. At the same time, the people of France were facing an economic crisis, and a part of this was caused by a regressive system of taxation, but the other part was due to the exorbitant expenses of the American Revolution, as seen in the movie The Patriot. So all of a sudden, Mel Gibson is involved in this, and who saw that coming, am I right? The French liked the idea of pissing off the British, a tradition that still holds fast even today if my last trip is anything to go by. So they decided to help America and Mel Gibson by giving them heaps of cash so that they could fight England and their monarch, King George III, a.k.a. Nigel Hawthorne in the Madness of King George. So on one side of the Atlantic, America is being liberated from the monarchy, and on the other side, the people of France are suffering, The nobility of France, who represented less than 2% of the population, kept voting against reform that would help the people. This voting minority were referred to as the Second Estate. However, on the 17th of June 1789, the Third Estate, which was made up of the commoners, reconstituted themselves as the National Assembly, a body whose purpose it was to create the French Constitution. So Jason Schwartzman initially opposed this development, but he was forced to acknowledge the authority of the Assembly, and suddenly, things are hotting up a bit. The tide was beginning to turn. Meanwhile in Versailles, a man called Jacques Necker, ironic, had just been dismissed and banished. Now, as far as I can recall, Jacques isn't in any films I've seen. I don't know Jacques. Jacques. However, I've asked a few people and the general consensus is that if anyone had to play him in a film adaptation of his life, it would be Alan Cumming. So that's who he is now, Alan Cumming. Alan Cumming had been, until his banishment, Jason Schwartzman's finance minister and sympathetic to the third estate, the poor people. Word got back to Paris on the afternoon of Sunday the 12th of July that Cumming had been, you know, put on indefinite leave, so to speak. And they believe this marked the start of a coup by the Conservatives. Troops were brought in from Versailles, Sevres, the Champs-de-Mars and Saint-Denis to shut down the National Assembly. Meanwhile, tensions were rising. Crowds were gathering, more than 10,000 at the Palais-Royal. That's when journalist and politician Camille Desmoulins, who for the sake of this story is played by Luke Hemsworth, mounted a table, pistol in hand, and he said the following. Citizens! There is no time to lose. The dismissal of Necker is the knell of a St. Bartholomew for patriots. This very night, all the Swiss and German battalions will leave the de mars to massacre us all. One resource is left. To take arms! Now, I don't know why he had a British accent, and personally, I think Luke Hemsworth really let himself down with the performance there. But the rioting ensued, and by the morning of the 14th of July, Paris was in a state of alarm. The revolutionaries had earlier stormed the Hotel des Invalides with the intention of gathering 32,000 muskets stored there. I'm just going to say, that is a lot of guns for one hotel. I mean, who the f*** was staying there? Uh, sir, would you like me to help you take up your baggage? Oh, please. What? But here's the even weirder thing. So many guns, no gunpowder. The commandant at the hotel had, in the previous few days, taken the 250 barrels of gunpowder from the Hotel Boom Boom to the Bastille for safer storage, and thus our angry mob headed to the Bastille. At this point, the Bastille was nearly empty. Only seven prisoners remained inside. However, to the revolutionaries, the building remained a symbol of royal tyranny. The crowd gathered around mid-morning, calling for the surrender of the prison, the removal of the cannon, there was a cannon, I didn't mention there's a cannon, and the release of the arms and gunpowder for all the guns in room 317. Then shit went down. Now, I don't mean to skip over all the bloody bits. Let's just say there was a lot of fighting. The fortress was liberated at 5.30pm that evening, and the governor, Bernard René de Lunet was invited to have a nice sit-down with the revolutionaries where they could all chat about their feelings and differences. Oh, wait, that's not true. He was dragged through Paris, and after a royal beating, he shouted, Enough! Let me die! At which point he kicked a pastry cook in the groin and was then stabbed to death. And I didn't even make that bit up. I, that was, I read that. That's history. Just imagine being groin kick man. Uh, sir, what is your role in this? And be clear, because I'm writing all of this down for historical purposes. I got kicked in the dick. King Jason Schwartzman learned of the storming of the Bastille only the next morning through a dukey friend of his. Is it a revolt? asked Jason, and the Duke replied, No, sire, it's not a revolt. It's a revolution. I'm joined in the studio by Professor Peter McPhee, former Deputy Vice Chancellor for Academics at Melbourne University, and author of several books focusing on French history and the French Revolution, including Liberty or Death, the French Revolution, and Living in the French Revolution from 1789 to 1799. Professor, welcome to the show. It's
4: lovely to be here.
2: Now, we were just talking about the Bastille, the storming of the Bastille. Why was this the turning point in the French Revolution?
4: Oh, it's a critical turning point because uh, the situation in July 1789 was electric. Mm. Louis XVI had, uh, under great pressure because of his financial problems, had called a meeting of representatives of his people, uh, the clergy, the nobility and the commons, as they were called. Uh, And on the 20th of June, the commons had effectively dug their heels in and said to Louis XVI, in theory, an absolute monarch, we are the people we're going to call ourselves the national assembly and we're not dispersing until we've given France a constitution i mean it was the first uh, revolutionary act of 1789 um, this is at versailles 20 kilometers from paris but the but paris itself is sort of crackling with rumors about how the court how the king how the nobility are going to respond to this revolutionary challenge which has come from the from the commons uh, so the, the the situation, the atmosphere is electric with, uh, with rumours flying about troop movements. What's going to happen? Is there simply going to be a, a coup from the army? Um, Louis decides to sack the one minister in his government who's a non-noble.
2: This was Necker. Uh,
4: yeah, a man named Jacques Necker, a Genevan, a banker, who's quite popular but mistrusted by the court. He's sacked on the 11th of July, and that seems to many people in Paris to be The final proof that something nasty is going on, that the troop movements through Paris with the king's mercenaries, the Swiss guards and so on, that something sinister is about to happen. And they decide to arm themselves. And in so doing, the cry goes up, uh, a la Bastille. Let's go to the Bastille where uh, so many military supplies are held. It's also a very important Symbol of uh, of the king's power because he had the power to simply send individuals to the fortress to be imprisoned at his pleasure, even though there are only half a dozen people there at the time. So it's a symbolic, uh, massive, towering fortress in the in the popular neighborhoods of Paris, and the act of seizing it is seen to be a decisive turning point in the revolution because. It really intimidates Louis into backing off.
3: Is it true?
2: This is something I read online, and just so my followers don't think that I'm uh, a complete liar. Is it true that the governor of the Bastille was dragged through the streets, he was beaten, and then he yelled, enough, let me die, at which point he kicked a pastry cook in the groin and was stabbed to death? Is that true or is Wikipedia lying to me? Because that's that's great if that's history that somehow got passed down.
4: (laughs) I'm dubious about the kick in the groin. (laughs) 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 To admit. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of it's pretty accurate. It was, yeah, it was a, ho- it was a horrible death. He, after all, uh, this man Delaunay, uh, had ordered the troops in the Bastille to open fire on the crowd of working people who'd armed themselves, and something like a hundred people had been killed and many others wounded. When he finally surrenders, there is this terrible sort of punitive justice that's meted out. Uh, where he's uh, where he stabbed to death, which was and and it's a horrible uh, it's a horrible act which shocks people mm. uh, and really confronts the new National Assembly as it's called confronts them immediately with the problem of of revolutionary violence and and what to do about it.
2: In your book, Living the French Revolution, you focus not only on how this affected the First Estate in France, mm-hmm. is that correct? The royalty, mm-hmm. but regular people as well. So. How did the storming of the Bastille and this turning point change lives for just regular French people? Was it a positive thing?
4: Well, think that uh, July 1789, July is the moment when the new crop comes in. And 85% of French people are peasants. Mm. Uh, The harvest of 1788 had been disastrous. Massive numbers of French people are hungry they're also full of expectation because when Louis calls together representatives of his people at Versailles in May 1789, that hasn't happened for 175 years. People uh, have their expectations aroused. Something is going to happen. Good King Louis is going to do something uh, for us. They're also waiting to bring the new crop in, and it's a bountiful crop. When the news of the Bastille starts permeating out to the countryside, and it takes weeks to before it uh, reaches the farthest corners of, of France, people respond with a mixture of elation that the common people have stood up in, in, in Paris. But they're terrified because what if the nobility in particular, what if the army, what if the monarchy extracts revenge? People across the countryside start arming themselves too in case that attack happens. They, they hear rumours that the nobility, in order to punish the people will uh, pay beggars, and there are plenty of beggars on the streets and and roads of France at the time because of hunger, they'll pay them to cut the crops down before they're ripe or set fire to them. Oh, wow. These rumours are sweeping the country, and there's a simultaneous explosion in about half a dozen different places uh, in France of what comes to be called the Great Fear, where terrified rural communities arm themselves in fear of what's going to happen to their crops. When, in fact, the brigands don't appear and start burning them down, they take revenge on uh, the nobility. They confront um, the nobles, their their castles, and confront the old feudal system.
2: Is this this what people talk about when they say the terror, this way that the nobility were confronted? Mm -hmm. Is that what the terror is?
4: No, the terror is the period uh, later after... Revolutionary France, which is such a threat to the rest of Europe, and France is the most powerful country in Europe, France effectively ends up at war with the whole of Europe. By 1793, Louis XVI is finally overthrown completely and guillotined as a traitor at a time of war. And the emergency measures that the new Republican government put in place in 1793 are called, in hindsight, the terror. They put in place a lot of draconian military measures Measures of surveillance, repression, uh, they act very tough because France is being overrun with uh, by foreign troops. A lot of people are imprisoned. Maybe uh, as many as 30,000 people are guillotined. Wow. For having taken up arms to oppose the Republic, having collaborated with the enemy in some way. And in hindsight, that year becomes known as the Terror. It's a strange terror in that it's the work of the government uh, and it's also successful. I mean, the French Republic wins the wars, but at terrible cost of life. Uh, And in hindsight, it becomes this uh, very controversial period that we call the terror. So
2: we're at 1793 and at this point, Point Napoleon Bonaparte was starting to really have a hand yeah. in the revolution. Yeah. Is, is that correct?
4: Yeah, and he's a he's a young he's a young man. He's a brilliant young man that owes his rise to the revolution in the sense that he didn't have the the pedigree uh, to have reached the top of the army before the revolution because you really had to be a well born noble and he was from very minor Corsican aristocracy. You had to be a very w- well born noble to get to the top of the army, but the revolution opens up careers for. Talented uh, young men. Uh, he is one, and 1793 is the time where he really starts to make his name because during this period of foreign invasion and civil war, uh, he is crucial in in leading the Republican armies to victory over the English fleet, who've occupied the Mediterranean port of Toulon, mm-hmm. which is where the the major French fleet is, is held, and which is surrendered to the to the English. Uh, he becomes uh, a hero. But he's a Republican at the time. He's in favour of the terror. It's only later when he seizes power with the army in 1799 that he tries to Sort of disown that uh, radical past and becomes a much more um, ceremonial leader.
2: But it still took him another seven years before he got to that point. So that was just more seven years of turmoil for the country. You can see why the commoners yeah, yeah. were afraid. They. Oh,
4: but he's he makes a name for himself because when the um, when that period of the terror is successful in 1794 and expels all of the foreign troops from French soil, the Republic is safe. There's then a huge uh, debate. So what now? And there are some people in France that say, well, we're safe. Just do peace treaties and let's get on with it. There are other people, including Napoleon, that says, no, why don't we start exporting the rights of man? Why don't we start exporting the revolution into neighbouring countries, establishing sister republics? Because after all, we represent the future. And Napoleon makes a name for himself with sort of brilliant victories, particularly uh, in the north of Italy. Uh, And he still uh, sees himself as representing the ideals of the French Revolution, which uh, he believes it's self-evident will be ones that Europeans in general, all of humanity in the end, will respond to because they're universal rights. Mm. Uh, But of course, people in those neighbouring countries don't Take too well always to having soldiers saying, We're bringing you freedom.
2: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's,
4: a, it's a qualified sort of freedom. But in 1799, in the end, uh, at a time of great political instability, he seizes power with the army. British people initially welcome the French Revolution because they see uh, what happens in 1789 as almost France catching up with England, because England by then already had parliament. Interesting. Uh, it already had constitutional monarchy. Uh, and so, when France in 1789 establishes constitutional monarchical government and all the rest of it, most people in Britain say, terrific. Um, you know, we, they're enthusiastic, there's huge support. It's only when, of course, uh, France goes to war with Britain in 1793, everything changes. Um, and uh, France is at war with Britain for a whole generation.
2: Goodness me. And that's where Horatio Hornblower comes into it. See, it's all coming together now. It's all coming together. (laughs) I'm putting it together. When you just returned from France, do you feel that you still sense the effects of the revolution in modern-day France?
4: Oh, it's fundamental. And um, uh, people, uh, French people in in general, I think, sometimes don't recognise the significance of the French Revolution in terms of its impact on French society, but also uh, internationally. I mean, the the changes that the revolution brings are extraordinary in terms of the abolition of a whole social order based on feudalism, the introduction of the concept of the equal dignity of all, of all humans, constitutional government, declarations of rights. Uh, these are seen to be of international significance and they reverberate through the world. I mean, the more that scholars investigate the... Uh, the 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 impact of the revolution, the more they see the way in which, uh, well, uh, across the world, different groups of people take up some of the ideas of the revolution and adapt them to their own situation. So, uh, it's not that the French Revolution sort of uh, conquers the rest of the world, but people elsewhere in the world respond to it positively or or negatively. But the, you know, the French Revolution transforms everybody's lives. What's so controversial about it is that, for many people, uh, that comes at a terrible cost. So that even though the French Revolution achieves the, most of what people hoped for in 1789 in terms of constitutional government and rights and the end of privilege, the end of feudalism and so on, it takes a long time. And many people lose their lives. The civil war... Uh, the Catholic Church is ripped apart, uh, the, you know, the, the repercussions uh, go on. And it's why uh, the Bastille Day that we're about to celebrate only becomes part of French public life in 1880 because it really takes the best part of a century before the great mass of French people are comfortable with republicanism.
2: Oh, wow. That
4: some of the deepest uh, wounds of the French Revolution start to be healed.
2: You can understand why perhaps this year, not to say that it will be a heated Bastille Day, but with everything that's been happening over the past few months with the Gilets Jaunes and yep. what, they're, yep. what they're fighting for, do you think that we will see more protests or at least there'll be a slightly different feeling this year?
4: One of the fascinating uh, parallels with the Gilets Jaunes has been that Early in 1789, when Louis XVI said, I'm calling together representatives of my people to give me advice about the financial mess and so on, part of that process was that every community across the country, every one of the 40,000 parishes, people had to get together and write down their grievances. They were called cahiers de de doléances, lists of grievances. Uh, Gosh,
2: that just sounds like Twitter. Yeah, that's right.
4: (laughs) (laughs) And people did this with extraordinary alacrity. And we have most of them. They're amazing documents. Here we are in the eve of a revolution, the king saying, what's the matter? Right. (laughs) And what would you do about it? They're extraordinary documents. Now, um, last year when the Gilets Jaunes movement took off, spontaneously a lot of mayors in communities across the country opened up lists of grievance books in their town halls and said, we again have rumblings of popular discontent it would be a good idea to ask people to come along to the local town hall and write them down. So when Macron has been going around the country having his public uh, meetings and so on, he's also been getting his um, his officials to look at these extraordinary documents that have been generated right now. Wow. Um, I think there will be uh, protests because a lot of people in France feel that Macron's response to the Gilets Jaunes movement has been uh, rather limited. Uh, and even though the Gilets jaunes movement has sort of dissipated very largely now, I think we may see um, some protests around July the 14th. Let's remember that back in 2009, it was pretty ugly. You know, there were something like 300 cars burnt in, in Paris. A couple of years ago, it was even uglier than when the, the terrible episode happened in Nice, when the Person drove the truck through the the crowd celebrating Bastille Day. You know, let's hope there's nothing like that. But I I wouldn't be surprised if there's some form of popular anger uh, around Bastille Day.
2: Finally, um, a character, a character, a person through history who we've discussed a couple of times, and somebody who, from a very young age, I was fascinated by. I'm sure you get this very often. Was Marie Antoinette? Yeah. Who was you know one of the key factors in the French Revolution. From from what I've from what I've garnered. But I also know there was a lot of misrepresentation about her life.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Do you have an opinion on her?
4: Oh, I think that, like Louis the Sixteenth, she's someone who's put in an impossible situation. When those two are married, Louis Louis the Sixteenth is fifteen; she's fourteen.
1: Mm.
4: She doesn't speak, speak French, uh, and suddenly here are these uh, two uh, young teenagers from two of the great powers of Europe who were told to forge an alliance and to love each other. Uh, And not surprisingly, it's difficult. I mean, in the end, uh, they have a family, but it takes them quite a while, and she becomes the butt of all sorts of obscene jokes, as does Louis XVI. Um, I mean, the sexual rivalry of of the pre-revolutionary and post-revolutionary literature is quite extraordinary. But she becomes a real uh, object of vituperation, and that's particularly the case once France goes to war with her homeland, with Austria, in 1792, because her nephew is the emperor of Austria. And she's accused of, send, of uh, sending military secrets, of wanting the victory of, of Austria, etc., etc. She becomes uh, an object of absolute loathing and is accused of everything uh, under the sun. Uh, of course, she's someone who's very limited by her own background, I and mean, she has no understanding of ordinary people. Um, she doesn't make things easier for herself, but in the end, she becomes a very convenient scapegoat for everything that people hate about old Europe. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. But she didn't say, let the meat cake.
2: No, <laughs> I do know this. I know.
4: That was, um, I think that accusation was first made about her in the 1930s. Uh, and it's an old sort of German stereotype that just gets tra- transferred onto her that, um, that people in German folklore, when they're criticising the very well-to-do, that's a story they tell. That right. They have so little understanding of the lives of the poor that they think they should eat cake if they've got no bread. Yeah. And it's imputed to Marie Antoinette, but there's absolutely no evidence. And that
2: her that. her end was so much more grisly than her husband's. They really made her suffer in the end. Oh,
4: the Well, the allegations about her um, are just uh, – some of them are you know plainly – what we today would call aggressively misogynist. Mm. Um, She's accused of everything, including incest with her own son. Um, But, yeah, it's uh, not pleasant. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash
5: switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, that is an awful lot of history right there. And what better way to wash it all down than with some wine and cheese, am I right? For Australians, Bastille Day represents a great opportunity to learn more and share more about French culture. So how can you get involved? Well, celebrations will be going on all over Australia, from a Bastille Day dinner at the iconic Adelaide Central Market on Saturday the 13th to an afternoon of drinks and cheese with West Village's Fromage in Brisbane. While over in Sydney, something very big is on the way. Revolution in the Rocks is a French cultural celebration of food, wine and art, held annually in Sydney's Circular Quay and The Rocks. This year, the festival will run from the 11th to the 14th of July, and it's going to be bigger than ever before. I had the pleasure of speaking with festival founder, Vincent Hernandez, and it was wonderful to hear how important this celebration is to him. How many people are you expecting at this festival?
1: Ah, look, it's, it's a lot. Uh, we, we've, we've been growing, uh, every year. And yeah. last year was, was about 650,000 people in four days. Wow. Which is, which is huge. Uh, just the Christmas in July in the rocks was about 250,000. Uh, that's why this year we're putting like lots of decorations everywhere. Yeah. So it's, it's a big celebration. It's a big street celebration. Plus, from 10 in the morning to 11 in the evening with like lots of things happening everywhere. Yeah. So there's, there's really a, a little bit for everyone.
2: Now you founded this festival. This is your baby. It, you must feel yeah, incredibly correct. proud to be able to bring French culture on this level to Australia. I mean, how how important um, is Bastille Day for you personally?
1: It is. It is very important. Uh, like you said, I, I like that. It's it's really my baby, and I've been growing it every year, bringing like more and more kind of crazy ideas on the table. And sometimes, uh, um, yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's just it, to me it's. When when I, I created that when I first arrived in Australia and and uh, I was I was simply missing um, some of my uh, favorite products and and I was like it's really what is missing here is is a big gathering um, where people can can enjoy freely arts um, like music, uh, uh, buskers, um, uh, artists in, in general, and, and and food and 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 wine and stuff, and so. Yeah, it's that's still Day and the celebration and being able to bring those values and share them with Australia is, is something that I I love every year. Like, um, it's, uh, I'm very, very happy about that. Um, but I don't know if I'm proud, but uh, I'm always very excited uh, mm-hmm. to bring the new one and, uh, and to see how many people are coming and, and enjoying it. I think that's, the most important for me.
2: What's the French community like in Sydney, if you don't mind me asking? Is it a very strong community?
1: It's Look, it's a, it's a fairly, it's about 25,000 people uh, in Sydney, so it's not that huge. Um, but yeah, like uh, most, of the, most of the French people, we know that still because, first of, first of all, they will bring some of their Australian friends to, to, to try some stuff in terms of food or or even um, at, at the cinema, we, we, we screen like, very like you know how you have your movies waiting, but yeah. we have like um, a few movies like that that are cult movies for French people. So none of nobody in Australia really would know that, would know them. But French people will come and bring Australian friends to get them to discover um, those, those movies. So that that's the that's the thing that is interesting. The community is not huge, mm-hmm. but uh, but it's. Uh, it's
2: there speaking of the films i saw that you have really programmed that wonderfully there are the films that i'm familiar with like julie and julie and all that sort of stuff yeah. but welcome to the sticks i've never heard of it and i watched the preview and that looks hilarious it's
1: it's, it's it was this movie was the biggest like hit in france it, it did just 25 uh, million people uh, uh, going and watching it wow. so it, it was huge it's it's an extraordinary super fun movie but uh, look at it in the north of france and it's like you don't have to be french to understand it it's uh, it's it's really something that um, you know that's that kind of movie that everyone can laugh um, at and uh, and and yeah it's um, it's one of the the movies you should not miss at, at the festival
2: Not ones to miss out on an opportunity to eat cheese and drink wine. Melbournians will also be celebrating Bastille Day at Federation Square. And I'm very excited to invite the project manager of French Festival Melbourne into the studio. Joe Bertrand, thank you very much for joining us on Ruler Mark. I guess we should kick off by saying that this is the fifth year that Melbourne have hosted their Bastille Day Festival, which is great. Congratulations. What can visitors expect this year?
3: More of what we've done over the last four years and Mm -hmm. then a few extra added amazing things. So we've got uh, a full program of um, music and bands and DJs. So we have some really great um, PBS DJs actually who play it So Frenchy, So Chic every year. So they're going to come along and play some good tunes on Friday and Saturday night. We've got uh, a lot of... Everything you'd expect from a French festival, we've got um, all the pastries and saucisson and all of the good melty cheese, delicious stinky cheeses that you could possibly want. Champagne, of course, and really good red wine. We've got master classes, we've got pastries, whatever you could possibly think of. We've got some amazing talks. So, I, you know, I could go on forever. We've got a really good program.
2: Now do you actually put a French accent on your name when you say it? Bertrand?
3: No. no.
2: <laughs> so it's just Bertrand?
3: Bertrand. Actually. Bertrand. I'm oh sorry. no. <laughs> Australians just have completely ruined my name. Oh, so no. yes. <laughs> well I'm sitting here with Joe Bertrand. Joe, uh, Joe, g'day you know, Joe. <laughs> So this is my second festival. So last year I was brought on to uh, – I guess they it started as a bit of a grassroots um, festival uh, led by the Consulate of um, France in Melbourne. So the Consul General had done it as a way to bring together all the French associations under a one umbrella festival to celebrate Bastille Day because the French population, I guess, in Melbourne is not – like a lot of the other expat communities they don't tend to congregate together they spread themselves out and get involved in every part of melbourne life so you'll you know you don't get a french street or a french area. Mm. So this was a way to bring them all together under one roof, I suppose. And so if it's been going for the last uh, five years. This is the fifth year. And I was brought on last year as a way of sort of taking it to the next level, I guess. Um,
2: yeah, yeah, I was going to actually ask about the French community because I know that's mentioned on the website. It's all about bringing that community mm. together. Um, Australians celebrating French culture, all that sort of stuff. And And the French community in Melbourne is something that I don't feel very often, you're right, there isn't, you know, a French street and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Do you know how many French expats are living in Melbourne? Do you have those sorts of numbers? So registered French
3: people living in Melbourne, registered with the consulate, there's 10,000. But I mean, of all the, you know, other people who don't go to the consulate, because I know as an English person, I've never gone to my consulate (laughs) and registered as an English person here. So I think that, you know, who, who can, who knows? We regularly get around Eight to 10,000 people at our festival and we're expecting probably more at Federation Square but that's people who love France, you know, Francophiles, Francophony people, people from different French speaking communities around the world and then just people who really like to kick their feet up with the can-can and drink a few wines, which is most of Melbourne, let's I think face that's it. that's most people, yeah <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask so this week on Mark
2: we're talking about French celebrations all over the country and how everybody is celebrating Bastille Day, but you mentioned something that I don't think many other places are doing, which are these talks that you're giving. I I noticed that there are talks on French history, Mm -hmm. there are talks on wine. Can you explain those a little bit more?
3: Yes. So we decided and the committee decided a few years ago that it shouldn't just be about French food and wine. And there is obviously that element, but it should also be about French culture, French history. And so we do an amazing um, a program of talks. So this year we're doing, uh, some really incredible talks. Actually. I wish that I wasn't working on the festival so I could go yeah. to some of them. Um, we're doing an amazing symposium where we're bringing together people from different French speaking backgrounds around the world. So African countries Muslim countries and various different places around the world and bringing them together to give a bit of an understanding of what it's like, I guess, to grow up bilingual in a multicultural society. So that's going to be a really interesting and very topical one, I think. Um, We're doing something on women in the French Revolution, so um, which will be really interesting, and I think probably something that hasn't been explored that much. So I think that's going to be a really fantastic talk. And then we're doing something about Notre Dame, obviously, the terrible fire that happened this year. So we'll be doing an amazing talk about um, the history of it and how it's um, contributed to French society Mm. over hundreds and hundreds of years. and
2: Yeah. yeah. Though some of those talks sound absolutely incredible, including the talk on women in the French Revolution. It was funny approaching Bastille Day this year and I realised that I had a very vague idea about what it represented to the French people, but... You're right in that we do still need to, as well as joining in with these things, have a better understanding of what they actually represent. Mm. I've felt very similar things with even, you know, other practices like yoga recently. Yeah, going, right. okay, I understand I'm saying Namaste, but what does that mean? And and I really like that you guys are taking it to that next level with just that little bit of education as well. That's
3: really great. That, thank you. That's exactly what we've had many meetings about, trying to mm. make sure that we do, um, obviously celebrate because it's the French National Day, but also educate as well. So pe- you know, people understand why it's so important to French people and the history of, you know, liberté, égalité fraternity I hope I'm saying that right some French people will probably tell me I'm not Let's take the Everything. <laughs> I just get so lit but that um, sounded good to me thank you <laughs> and so you know where that all comes from and why that is so important to French
2: people it is very easy with French culture I find to just look at those surface things like the food and the wine which is so enjoyable and really fun to connect with but yeah it is wonderful to know a little bit more thank you so much Joe, for coming in thank you thanks for having me Speaking of the merging of French and Australian culture, I am really excited about our next guest. Originally from Warrnambool in Victoria, fashion photographer Stephanie Lou moved to France 10 years ago. In 2018, she founded Peachy Keen magazine, a Franco-Australian magazine celebrating ethical and sustainable fashion from Australia and New Zealand. Peachy Keen shines a light on local designers who are proposing a new way to create and consume fashion. Well, Steph... Welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to have you here. You've been living in France for 10 years now. So,
5: what prompted the move? So, I came to France in 2010 after finishing a gap year uh, in 2009. The Centrelink actually made a, made a mistake with the uh, youth allowance for everyone who finished in 2008. And we were given an extra year to earn youth allowance if we needed to. Awesome. I'd already earned a large. I'd already earned like way over what I needed to earn. So I took the extra year anyway and went to Europe and decided to be an au pair. Uh, so I wanted to go to England because I didn't speak French and I had no, never really thought about coming to France at all. But um, I babysat for a family in Warrnambool that was half French and the mum had actually been an au pair. That's how she met the dad. And so they were kind of like, well, why don't you give France a go? And the first family that I sort of started uh, chatting with, we hit it off and I came and I looked after their children. So I've always loved Mary Poppins. It's my it's my favorite movie. And I think uh, because of that, I had some crazy idea that I'd go to England and I'd be like Mary Poppins and be amazing. And yeah. It turns out being an au pair isn't as great as what Mary Poppins makes it out to be. (laughs) It was still fun. Man,
2: I've spoken with au pairs and they're like, the pay isn't great and we're just on call 24-7. And I can't
5: imagine how hard it
2: would have been with the language barriers as well.
5: Exactly. My first family, it was pretty good because they'd only had Australian au pairs. So the kids had little Australian accents and um, everyone spoke English. The parents spoke French when the kids were in bed. Um, So they'd speak French together so I would listen and I really, that's sort of how I started learning French was just listening to them talk together and watching TV with them and then I decided that I needed to like make a little bit of progress in my French so I changed family to a family where no one spoke French and that was, for the first three months it was a nightmare, it was horrible. Like I've never been personally like bullied and manipulated by a three-year-old so much in my whole entire life. (laughs) Insane how much someone can be in control of you when you don't speak their language, even if they're three. Are you fluent now? Technically, yes. Like, I have a certificate saying that I am. But I'm only really fluent for, like, listening and speaking. I still can't read and write because I've never taken an official class. Uh, When I first came, my French was so bad. That my first ever OK French class, they were talking, and I put up my hand and I was like, I was like What does Daco mean? And they basically just pointed at the door and I'm like, Get out. Oh my God. So, Other than the language barriers, was
2: moving over to France more or less difficult than you thought it was going to be?
5: I think it was, to be honest, I can't really remember. Yeah, I know I had a hard time because I was very homesick at the beginning. Like, I, I come from Warrnambool, I'd never left Warrnambool, I'd never left my parents' house. I had my own little safe life in Warrnambool, and then all of a sudden, I was in France alone, responsible for someone else's children. I couldn't even do anything by myself because I couldn't go. I couldn't go to the bank. I couldn't get a phone. I always had to have the mum of the family with me. So it was definitely scary. So,
2: you've been there for ten years, and in the last few years you've decided to 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 take on this incredible project, which is Peachy Keen Magazine, an Australian Franco fashion magazine. What inspired you to create Peachy Keen in the first place?
5: So Peachy Keen came about in when we went to Copenhagen for New Years in two thousand so like two thousand and seventeen, two thousand and eighteen, and I was sort of thinking about what I would do for my New year's resolution. Um, I didn't want to pick something that was like lose weight or drink less or anything like that because I know February and Carmen have already lost. <laughs> so I wanted to make a new project still within what I do as my everyday job, which is fashion photography. I just didn't want to be only doing fashion, uh, only being the photographer. I really like everything that's the organization side of the fo- of, photo- of photography and of organising shoots and getting people together. I also wanted to find a way that I could connect more with Australia because I'd been feeling quite homesick. So in the beginning, it was just in Instagram, I wanted to bring uh, Australian ethical and sustainable fashion to France just because I feel in some ways it's done a little bit differently and it's not as taboo as what it is in France. Like it's definitely getting better in France, but the subject is still quite, taboo and like very niche so it was just to start off as an Instagram and then all of a sudden like a month later I was organizing a website and the magazine and trying to get people together and trying to work out how I would pay for the printing and how who would print it and it was just like a whirlwind all of a sudden the project had become way more than just an Instagram.
2: Yeah it's funny how things just snowball and then you're like oh I'm making a magazine now that's amazing you know, it's not just this collection of photos, though. As you said, there is so much else to it. It's just—it's uh, a very rich magazine. There are very provocative editorials. There are nods in there to Indigenous culture, which I, I really loved. Beautiful spreads on native Australian mm-hmm. flora. It's—I've—I've I've not seen Australian and French culture come together in a project quite like this before. And I just can't imagine the work that went into it. How
5: much did you have to put in to make this happen? A lot, a lot, a lot of time. Like I often work all day on Stephanie Lou, so my photography. And then nighttime comes around and my husband will like sit down and be watching Netflix and I'm next to him on my laptop uh, contacting Australia because that's the best time is when everyone's awake in the morning because then otherwise I'm asleep when everyone's at work and nothing gets done. But it's a lot of trying to connect to people, reaching out, reaching out by email, chasing after people on Instagram like I won't deny I'm a serial stalker on Instagram like that's the I find it's the best way to get in contact with people it's just yeah a lot of personal time like reaching out to people sending people as much information on Future
2: keen as I can what's the reception been like and do you think it was received better in France or in
5: Australia I think it's been about the same like everyone's been very very positive about it i think even though in australia obviously people know like the australian and new zealand ethical and sustainable brands uh people have really loved the fact that i'm trying to bring it outside of australia as well and bring it to a, a french market and a french, uh, like the french french readers In France, it's the same thing. Like, they love the fact that I'm showing them things that they might not necessarily know about Australia. Like, I feel a lot of people know the cliche things, like they know Sydney Harbour, they know Uluru, and then that's about it. Yeah. Or, like, no kangaroos. So, this is really showing another side. I think also the style of magazine, I'm really trying to show that it's not because it's ethical and sustainable but it has to be beige and boring so Pitchy sort of looks like a regular magazine it's just that we're talking about ethical and sustainable fashion but then it still looks like a regular fashion magazine with beautiful clothes and colourful and fun and so I think it's just trying to break that sort of cliche of It has to be beige and boring and expensive and things like that.
2: Well, if people want to support Peachy Keen, the best uh, idea for them, I'm guessing, would be to hop online and order issue one or pre-order issue two, uh, which they can do at Peachy Keen. I'm going to say that again, Um, (laughs) peachykeenmag.com. What other ways can people support the Peachy Keen movement? Because it does seem like there is a
5: real initiative there. Even just going on Instagram and, like, sharing or – giving peachy Keen a like, like that more people will see it, talking about it with your friends. It's really just like, I think the most important thing about ethical and sustainable fashion and spreading the word, not just about peachy Keen, but about everything involved in general is just talking about it together. And if you learn something new, why not tell someone else? The best way to inform others is just by letting them know what you know already. And we don't have to be shoving it down each other's throats, but I think as long as we make it an open subject and have people aware of what really happens when we buy too much and buy too much things that we also don't need, it's really just about starting a conversation. And that's sort of what I wanted Peachy to be, was just an open conversation, so... Of course, if you would like to, you can support Peachy by buying one of the copies or even just speaking about it and letting other people know who may be interested in the idea. That's enough as well.
2: Listeners can head to peachykeenmag.com to order their copy of Issue 1 or pre-order Issue 2. Or you can follow Steph on Instagram at Magazine. Well, that brings us to the end of a pretty massive episode. For more information on the Bastille in the Rocks, visit bastillefestival.com.au. And if you're Melbourne-based, head to bastilledemelbourne.com. Jo was also really lovely in that she offered a very limited number of free tickets to Ruler Mark listeners for their magnificent Lumiere Talks 2019. Head to the Ruler Mark Facebook group to find out more. Well, everyone, that marks the end of the first series of Ruler Mark. But before I wrap things up, I just wanted to give you a bit of an update on a few of our magnificent guests. Author and beauty journalist Katrina Lawrence, the Paris Dreamer, won't only be dreaming of Paris for herself anymore. She'll be guiding enthusiastic travellers through the city of love via her new project, Paris for Dreamers, a website that offers personalised Parisian travel tips based on Katrina's vast experience. Paris for Dreamers is also an e-book available on Kindle. It's a collection of 25 strolls through Paris, telling 25 unique stories, perfect for the armchair traveller. Travel writer Anne Verhoeven has packed her bags yet again, this time embarking on new adventures in Berlin. But you can still follow her journey at @escapeartist escape artist on Instagram and read about her travel adventures on Intrepid Travels The Journal. Comedian Jackie Mifsford is currently working on a screenplay about her time as a tour guide in Paris, while still gigging around the country. You can check out more of her gigs at JacquelineMiffsford.com. She's also gone back to learning French, which I already thought she was pretty excellent at, so now I feel bad. And what about me? Well, I'm married now, so I'm going to settle down and have some kids. What? Just kidding. At this present juncture, I don't know when I'm going to be heading back to France. In fact, I don't know when I'm going to be going overseas again, which is really weird for me. But I have a few really big creative projects that I've been chipping away at for some time and the universe is telling me to hurry my ass up and get them finished. So for the next short while, I'll be hibernating behind my laptop with a cup of coffee and a plate of biscuits nearby. But ruler mark won't be quiet for long. Watch this space. We'll be coming back very soon, bigger and Frenchier than ever. For now, I just want to say that one of the things I found particularly unexpected about my first proper foray into podcast world was how many lovely human interactions it would lead to. From interviewing guests for the show to listeners who have reached out telling me their travel ideas or about their wedding plans, it has been so nice and I really cannot wait to keep this conversation rolling along. Please share the episode if you enjoyed it and definitely subscribe if you haven't already. I'll be keeping in touch with everyone on the Rulermark Facebook group via my Facebook page and I hope to see many of you out and about on Bastille Day. Thank you to Paul Verhoeven for making me sound wonderful week after week and to Laure Priet for her beautiful opening song, Je Vol. And most of all, thanks to you guys for listening. I'm Tegan Higginbotham. This is Ruler Mark. Au
0: revoir. Hold up.